Chapter twenty four of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter twenty four. Ride from Malmesbury in Wiltshire through Gloucestershire, Herefordshire, and Worcestershire. Stroud, Gloucestershire. Tuesday forenoon, twelfth September, eighteen twenty six. I set off from Malmesbury this morning at six o'clock, in as sweet and bright a morning as ever came out of the heavens, and leaving behind me as pleasant a house, and as kind hosts, as I ever met with in the whole course of my life, either in England or America, and that is saying a great deal indeed. This circumstance was the more pleasant, as I had never before either seen or heard of these kind, unaffected, sensible, sans façon, and most agreeable friends. From Malmesbury I first came, at the end of five miles, to Tutbury, which is in Gloucestershire, there being here a sort of dell or ravine, which in this place is the boundary line of the two counties, and over which you go on a bridge, one half of which belongs to each county. And now, before I take my leave of Wiltshire, I must observe that in the whole course of my life, days of courtship excepted, of course, I never passed seventeen pleasanter days than those which I have just spent in Wiltshire. It is, especially in the southern half, just the sort of country that I like. The weather has been pleasant, I have been in good houses and amongst good and beautiful gardens, and in every case I have not only been most kindly entertained, but my entertainers have been of just the stamp that I like. I saw again this morning large flocks of goldfinches feeding on the thistle-seed on the roadside. The French call this bird by a name derived from the thistle, so notorious has it always been that they live upon this seed. Thistle is in French chardon, and the French call this beautiful little bird chardonneret. I never could have supposed that such flocks of these birds would ever be seen in England. But it is a great year for all the feathered race, whether wild or tame. Naturally so, indeed, for every one knows that it is the wet and not the cold that is injurious to the breeding of birds of all sorts, whether land-birds or water-birds. They say that there are this year double the usual quantity of ducks and geese, and really they do seem to swarm in the farmyards wherever I go. It is a great mistake to suppose that ducks and geese need water except to drink, there is perhaps no spot in the world, in proportion to its size and population, where so many of these birds are reared and fatted as in Long Island, and it is not in one case out of ten that they have any ponds to go to, or that they ever see any water, other than water that is drawn up out of a well. A little way before I got to Tutbury, I saw a woman digging some potatoes in a strip of ground, making part of a field, nearly an oblong square, and which field appeared to be laid out in strips. She told me that the field was part of a farm, to the homestead of which she pointed, that it was by the farmer let out in strips to labouring people, that each strip contained a rood or quarter of a statute acre, that each married labourer rented one strip, and that the annual rent was a pound for the strip. Now the taxes being all paid by the farmer, the fences being kept in repair by him, and, as appeared to me, the land being exceedingly good, all these things considered, the rent does not appear to be too high. This fashion is certainly a growing one, it is a little step towards a coming back to the ancient small life and leaseholds and common fields. This field of strips was in fact a sort of common field, and the agriculturists, as the conceited asses of landlords call themselves at their clubs and meetings, might, and they would if their skulls could admit any thoughts except such as relate to high prices and low wages, they might, and they would, begin to suspect that the dark age people were not so very foolish when they had so many common fields, and when almost every man that had a family 
and also a bit of land either large or small it is a very curious thing that the enclosing of commons that the shutting out of the labourers from all share in the land that the prohibiting of them to look at a wild animal almost at a lark or a frog it is curious that this hard-hearted system should have gone on until at last it has produced effects so injurious and so dangerous to the grinders themselves that they have of their own accord and for their own safety begun to make a step towards the ancient system and have in the manner i have observed made the labourers sharers in some degree in the uses at any rate of the soil the far greater part of these strips of land have potatoes growing in them but in some cases they have borne wheat and in others barley this year and these have now turnips very young most of them but in some places very fine and in every instance nicely hoed out the land that will bear four hundred bushels of potatoes to the acre will bear forty bushels of wheat and the ten bushels of wheat to the quarter of an acre would be a crop far more valuable than a hundred bushels of potatoes as i have proved many times in the register just before i got into tutbury i was met by a good many people in twos threes or fives some running and some walking fast one of the first of whom asked me if i had met an old man some distance back i asked what sort of a man a poor man i don't recollect indeed but what are you all pursuing him for he has been stealing what has he been stealing cabbages where out of mr glover the hatter's garden what do you call that stealing and would you punish a man a poor man and therefore in all likelihood a hungry man too and moreover an old man do you set up a hue and cry after and would you punish such a man for taking a few cabbages when that holy bible which i dare say you profess to believe in and perhaps assist to circulate teaches you that the hungry man may without committing any offence at all go into his neighbour's vineyard and eat his fill of grapes one bunch of which is worth a sackful of cabbages yes but he is a very bad character why my friend very poor and almost starved people are apt to be bad characters but the bible in both testaments commands us to be merciful to the poor to feed the hungry to have compassion on the aged and it makes no exception as to the character of the parties another group or two of the pursuers had come up by this time and i bearing in mind the fate of don quixote when he interfered in somewhat similar cases gave my horse the hint and soon got away but though doubtless i made no converts i upon looking back perceived that i had slackened the pursuit the pursuers went more slowly i could see that they got to talking it was now the step of deliberation rather than that of decision and though i did not like to call upon mr glover i hope he was merciful it is impossible for me to witness scenes like this to hear a man called a thief for such a cause to see him thus eagerly and vindictively pursued for having taken some cabbages in a garden it is impossible for me to behold such a scene without calling to mind the practice in the united states of america where if a man were even to talk of prosecuting another especially if that other were poor or old for taking from the land or from the trees any part of a growing crop for his own personal and immediate use if any man were even to talk of prosecuting another for such an act such talker would be held in universal abhorrence people would hate him and in short if rich as ricardo were bearing he might live by himself for no man would look upon him as a neighbour tutbury is a very pretty town and has a beautiful ancient church the country is high along here for a mile or two towards evening which begins a long and deep and narrow valley that comes all the way down to stroud when i got to the end of the high country and the lower country opened to my view i was at about three miles from tutbury on the road to evening leaving the minchinghampton road to my right here i was upon the edge of the high land looking right down upon the village of evening and seeing just close to it a large and fine mansion-house a beautiful park and making part of the park 
one of the finest most magnificent woods of two hundred acres i dare say lying facing me going from a valley up a gently rising hill while i was sitting on my horse admiring this spot a man came along with some tools in his hand as if going somewhere to work as plumber whose beautiful place is that said i one squire ricardo i think they call him but you might have knocked me down with a feather as the old women say but continued the plumber the old gentleman's dead and god damn the old gentleman and the young gentleman too said i and giving my horse a blow instead of a word on i went down the hill before i got to the bottom my reflections on the present state of the market and on the probable results of watching the turn of it had made me better humoured and as one of the first objects that struck my eye in the village was the sign of the cross and of the red or bloody cross too i asked the landlord some questions which began a series of joking and bantering that i had with the people from one end of the village to the other i set them all a-laughing and though they could not know my name they will remember me for a long while this estate of gatcombe belonged i am told to a mr shepherd and to his fathers before him i asked where this shepherd was now a tradesman-looking man told me that he did not know where he was but that he had heard that he was living somewhere near to bath thus they go thus they are squeezed out of existence the little ones are gone and the big ones have nothing left for it but to resort to the bands of holy matrimony with the turn of the market-watchers and their breed this the big ones are now doing apace and there is this comfort at any rate namely that the connection cannot make them baser than they are a boroughmonger being of all god's creatures the very basest from evening i came on through nailsworth woodchester and rodborough to this place these villages lie on the sides of a narrow and deep valley with a narrow stream of water running down the middle of it and this stream turns the wheels of a great many mills and sets of machinery for the making of woollen cloth the factories begin at evening and are scattered all the way down the valley there are steam-engines as well as water-powers the work and the trade is so flat that in i should think much more than a hundred acres of ground which i have seen to-day covered with rails or racks for the drying of cloth i do not think that i have seen one single acre where the racks had cloth upon them the workmen do not get half wages great numbers are thrown on the parish but overseers and magistrates in this part of england do not presume that they are to leave anybody to starve to death there is law here this is in england and not in the north where those who ought to see that the poor do not suffer talk of their dying with hunger as irish squires do ay and applaud them for their patient resignation the gloucestershire people have no notion of dying with hunger and it is with great pleasure that i remark that i have seen no woe-worn creature this day the subsoil here is a yellowish ugly stone the houses are all built with this and it being ugly the stone is made white by a wash of some sort or other the land on both sides of the valley and all down the bottom of it has plenty of trees on it it is chiefly pasture land so that the green and the white colours and the form and great variety of the ground and the water and all together make this a very pretty ride here are a series of spots every one of which a lover of landscapes would like to have painted even the buildings of the factories are not ugly the people seem to have been constantly well off a pig in almost every cottage sty and that is the infallible mark of a happy people at present indeed this valley suffers and though cloth will always be wanted there will yet be much suffering even here while at ewley and other places they say that the suffering is great indeed huntley between gloucester and ross from stroud i came up to pitchcombe leaving painswick on my right from the lofty hill at pitchcombe i looked down into that great flat and almost circular vale of which the city of gloucester is in the centre to the left i saw the severn become a sort of arm of the sea and before me i saw the hills that divide this county from herefordshire and worcestershire the hill is a mile down 
when down you are amongst dairy farms and orchards all the way to gloucester and this year the orchards particularly those of pears are greatly productive i intended to sleep at gloucester as i had when there already come twenty-five miles and as the fourteen which remained for me to go in order to reach bollitry in herefordshire would make about nine more than either i or my horse had a taste for but when i came to gloucester i found that i should run a risk of having no bed if i did not bow very low and pay very high for what should there be here but one of those scandalous and beastly fruits of the system called a music meeting those who founded the cathedrals never dreamed i dare say that they would have been put to such uses as this they are upon these occasions made use of as opera-houses and i am told that the money which is collected goes in some shape or another to the clergy of the church or their widows or children or something these assemblages of player folks half rogues and half fools began with the small paper money and with it they will go they are amongst the profligate pranks which idleness plays when fed by the sweat of a starving people from this scene of prostitution and of pocket-picking i moved off with all convenient speed but not before the ostler made me pay ninepence for merely letting my horse stand about ten minutes and not before he had begun to abuse me for declining though in a very polite manner to make him a present in addition to the ninepence how he ended i do not know for i soon set the noise of the shoes of my horse to answer him i got to this village about eight miles from gloucester by five o'clock it is now half-past seven and i am going to bed with an intention of getting to bollitry six miles only early enough in the morning to catch my sons in bed if they play the sluggard bollitry wednesday thirteenth september this morning was most beautiful there has been rain here now and the grass begins but only begins to grow when i got within two hundred yards of mr palmer's i had the happiness to meet my son richard who said that he had been up an hour as i came along i saw one of the prettiest sights in the flower-way that i ever saw in my life it was a little orchard the grass in it had just taken a start and was beautifully fresh and very thickly growing amongst the grass was the purple-flowered colchicum in full bloom they say that the leaves of this plant which come out in the spring and die away in the summer are poisonous to cattle if they eat much of them in the spring the flower if standing by itself would be no great beauty but contrasted thus with the fresh grass which was a little shorter than itself it was very beautiful bollitry saturday twenty third september upon my arrival here which as the reader has seen was ten days ago i had a parcel of letters to open amongst which were a large lot from correspondents who had been good enough to set me right with regard to that conceited and impudent plagiarist or literary thief sir james graham baronet of netherby one correspondent says that i have reversed the rule of the decalogue by visiting the sins of the son upon the father another tells me anecdotes about the magnus apollo i hereby do the father justice by saying that from what i have now heard of him i am induced to believe that he would have been ashamed to commit flagrant acts of plagiarism which the son has been guilty of the whole of this plagiarist pamphlet is bad enough every part of it is contemptible but the passage in which he says that there was no man of any authority who did not underrate the distress that would arise out of peel's bill this passage merits a broomstick at the hands of any englishman that chooses to lay it on and particularly from me as to crops in hereford and gloucestershire they have been very bad even the wheat here has been only a two-third part crop the barley and oats really next to nothing fed off by cattle and sheep in many places partly for want of grass and partly from their worthlessness the cattle have been nearly starved in many places and we hear the same from worcestershire in some places one of these beautiful calves last spring calves will be given for the wintering of another hay at stroud was six pounds a ton last year it was three pounds a ton and yet meat and cheese are lower in price than they were last year 
Mutton, I mean alive, was last year at this time seven and a half pence. It is now six pence. There has been in North Wilts and in Gloucestershire half the quantity of cheese made this year, and yet the price is lower than it was last year. Wool is half the last year's price. There has, within these three weeks or a month, been a prodigious increase in the quantity of cattle food. The grass looks like the grass late in May, and the late and stubble turnips, of which immense quantities have been sown, have grown very much and promised large crops generally. Yet lean sheep have, at the recent fairs, fallen in price. They have been lessening in price, while the facility of keeping them has been augmenting. Aye, but the paper money has not been augmenting, notwithstanding the branch bank at Gloucester. This bank is quite ready, they say, to take deposits, that is to say, to keep people spare money for them, but to lend them none, without such security as would get money, even from the claws of a miser. This trick is then what the French call a coup manque, or a missing of the mark. In spite of everything, as to the season, calculated to cause lean sheep to rise in price, they fell, I hear, at Wilton Fair, near Salisbury, on the twelfth instant, from two shillings to three shillings a head. And yesterday, 22nd September, at Newent Fair, there was a fall since the last fair in this neighbourhood. Mr. Palmer sold at this fair sheep for twenty-three shillings a head, rather better than some which he sold at the same fair last year, for thirty-four shillings a head, so that years are falling off of a third. Think of the dreadful ruin, then, which must fall upon the renting farmers, whether they rent the land or rent the money which enables them to call the land their own. The recent order in council has ruined many. I was, a few days after that order reached us in Wiltshire, in a rickyard, looking at the ricks, amongst which were two of beans. I asked the farmer how much the order would take out of his pocket, and he said it had already taken out more than a hundred pounds. This is a pretty state of things for a man to live in. The winds are less uncertain than this calling of a farmer has now become, though it is a calling the affairs of which have always been deemed as little liable to accident as anything human. The best public instructor tells us that the ministers are about to give the militia clothing to the poor manufacturers. Coats, waistcoats, trousers, shoes, and stockings. Oh, what a kind as well as wise envy of surrounding nations this is! Dear good souls! But what are the women to do? No smocks, pretty gentlemen! No royal commission to be appointed to distribute smocks to the suffering females of the disturbed districts? How fine our manufacturing population will look all dressed in red! Then indeed will the farming fellows have to repent that they did not follow the advice of Dr. Black and fly to the happy manufacturing districts where employment, as the doctor affirmed, was so abundant and so permanent, and where wages were so high. Out of evil comes good, and this state of things has blown the Scotch political economy to the devil, at any rate. In spite of all their plausibility and persevering brass, the Scotch writers are now generally looked upon as so many tricky humbugs. Mr. Sedgwick's affair is enough, one would think, to open men's eyes to the character of this greedy band of invaders, for invaders they are, and of the very worst sort, they come only to live on the labour of others, never to work themselves, and while they do this they are everlastingly publishing essays, the object of which is to keep the Irish out of England. Dr. Black has, within these four years, published more than a hundred articles, in which he has represented the invasion of the Irish as being ruinous to England. What monstrous impudence! The Irish come to help do the work, the Scotch to help eat the taxes, or to tramp a bootmon with a pack and licence, or in other words to cheat upon a small scale, as their superiors do upon a large one. This tricky and greedy set have, however, at last overreached themselves, after having so long overreached all the rest of mankind, that have had the misfortune to come in contact with them. They are now smarting under the scourge, the torments of which they have long made others feel. 
they have been the principal inventors and executors of all that has been damnable to england they are now bothered and i thank god for it it may and it must finally deliver us from their baleful influence to return to the kind and pretty gentlemen of whitehall and their militia clothing if they refuse to supply the women with smocks perhaps they would have no objection to hand them over some petticoats or at any rate to give their husbands a musket apiece and a little powder and ball just to amuse themselves with instead of the employment of digging holes one day and filling them up the next as suggested by the great statesman now no more who was one of that noble honourable and venerable body the privy council to which sturgis bourne belongs and who cut his own throat at north cray in kent just about three years after he had brought in the bill which compelled me to make the register contain two sheets and a quarter and to compel printers to give before they began to print bail to pay any fines that might be inflicted on them for anything that they might print let me see where was i oh the muskets and powder and ball ought certainly to go with the red clothes but how strange it is that the real relief never seems to occur even for one single moment to the minds of these pretty gentlemen namely taking off the taxes what a thing it is to behold poor people receiving taxes or alms to prevent them from starving and to behold one half at least of what they receive taken from them in taxes what a sight to behold soldiers horse and foot employed to prevent a distressed people from committing acts of violence when the cost of the horse and foot would probably if applied in the way of relief to the sufferers prevent the existence of the distress a cavalry horse has i think ten pounds of oats a day and twenty pounds of hay these at present prices cost sixteen shillings a week then there's stable-room barracks straw saddle and all the trappings then there's the wear of the horse then the pay of them so that one single horseman with his horse do not cost so little as thirty-six shillings a week and that is more than the parish allowance to five labourers or manufacturers families at five to a family so that one horseman and his horse cost what would feed twenty-five of the distressed creatures if there be ten thousand of these horsemen they cost as much as would keep at the parish rate two hundred and fifty thousand of the distressed persons ay it is even so parson hay stare at it as long as you like but suppose it to be only half as much then it would maintain a hundred and twenty-five thousand persons however to get rid of all dispute and to state one staring and undeniable fact let me first observe that it is notorious that the poor rates are looked upon as enormous that they are deemed an insupportable burden that scarlet and nolan have asserted that they threaten to swallow up the land that it is equally notorious that a large part of the poor rates ought to be called wages all this is undeniable and now comes the damning fact namely that the whole amount of these poor rates falls far short of the cost of the standing army in time of peace so that take away this army which is to keep the distressed people from committing acts of violence and you have at once ample means of removing all the distress and all the danger of acts of violence when will this be done do not say never reader if you do you are not only a slave but you ought to be one i cannot dismiss this militia clothing affair without remarking that i do not agree with those who blame the ministers for having let in the foreign corn out of fear why not do it from that motive the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and what is meant by fear of the lord but the fear of doing wrong or of persevering in doing wrong and whence is this fear to arise from thinking of the consequences to be sure and therefore if the ministers did let in the foreign corn for fear of popular commotion they acted rightly and their motive was as good and reasonable as the act was wise and just it would have been lucky for them if the same sort of motive had prevailed when the corn bill was passed but that gamecock statesman who at last sent a spur into his own throat was then in high feather and he while soldiers were drawn up round the honourable 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 house said 
that he did not for his part care much about the bill but since the mob had clamoured against it he was resolved to support it alas that such a cock statesman should have come to such an end all the towns and cities in england petitioned against that odious bill their petitions were rejected and that rejection is amongst the causes of the present embarrassments therefore i am not for blaming the ministers for acting from fear they did the same in the case of the poor queen fear taught them wisely then also what would you never have people act from fear what but fear of the law restrains many men from committing crimes what but fear of exposure prevents thousands upon thousands of offences moral as well as legal nonsense about acting from fear i always hear with great suspicion your eulogies of vigorous government i do not like your vigorous governments your game-cock governments we saw enough of these and felt enough of them too under pitt dundas percival gibbs ellenborough sidmouth and castlereagh i prefer governments like those of edward i of england and st louis of france cocks as towards their enemies and rivals and chickens as towards their own people precisely the reverse of our modern country gentlemen as they call themselves very lions as towards their poor robbed famishing labourers but more than lambs as towards tax-eaters and especially as towards a fierce and whiskered dead weight in the presence of any of whom they dare not say that their souls are their own this base race of men called country gentlemen must be speedily changed by almost a miracle or they big as well as little must be swept away and if it should be desirable for posterity to have a just idea of them let posterity take this one fact that the tithes are now in part received by men who are rectors and vicars and who at the same time receive half pay as naval or military officers and that not one english country gentleman has had the courage even to complain of this though many gallant half-pay officers have been dismissed and beggared upon the ground that the half-pay is not a reward for past services but a retaining fee for future services so that put the two together they amount to this that the half-pay is given to church parsons that they may be when war comes ready to serve as officers in the army or navy let the world match that if it can and yet there are scoundrels to say that we do not want a radical reform why there must be such a reform in order to prevent us from becoming a mass of wretches too corrupt and profligate and base even to carry on the common transactions of life ryle near upton on seven worcestershire monday twenty fifth september i set off from mr palmer's yesterday after breakfast having his son about thirteen years old as my travelling companion we came across the country a distance of about twenty-two miles and having crossed the seven at upton arrived here at mr john price's about two o'clock on our road we passed by the estate and park of another ricardo this is osman the other is david this one has ousted two families of normans the honeywood yeateses and the scudamores they suppose him to have ten thousand pounds a year in rent here famous watching the turn of the market the bearings are at work down in this country too they are everywhere indeed depassing their eggs about like cunning old guinea hens in sly places besides the great open showy nests that they have the instructor tells us that the ricardos have received sixty four thousand pounds commission on the greek loans or rather loans to the greeks oh brave greeks to have such patriots to aid you with their financial skill such patriots as mr galloway to make engines of war for you while his son is making them for the turks and such patriots as burdett and hobhouse to talk of your political relations happy greeks happy mexicans too it seems for the best instructor tells us that the bearings whose progenitors came from dutchland about the same time as and perhaps in company with the ricardos happy mexicans too for the instructor as good as swears that the bearings will see that the dividends on your loans are paid in future now therefore the riches the loads the shiploads of silver and gold 
are now to pour in upon us. Never was there a nation so foolish as this. But, and this ought to be well understood, it is not mere foolishness, not mere harmless folly. It is foolishness, the offspring of greediness, and of a gambling, which is little short of a roguish disposition. And this disposition prevails to an enormous extent in the country, as I am told, more than in the monstrous wen itself. Most delightfully, however, have the greedy, mercenary, selfish, unfeeling wretches been bit by the loans and shares. The King of Spain gave the wretches a sharp bite, for which I always most cordially thank His Majesty. I dare say that his sponging off of the roguish bonds has reduced to beggary or cause to cut their throats many thousands of the greedy, fund-loving, stock-jobbing devils who, if they regard it likely to raise their securities one per cent, would applaud the murder of half the human race. These vermin all, without a single exception, approved of and rejoiced at Sidmouth's power of imprisonment bill, and they applauded his letter of thanks to the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry. No matter what it is that puts an end to a system which engenders and breeds up vermin like these. Mr. Hanford of this county and Mr. Canning of Gloucestershire, having dined at Mr. Price's yesterday, I went to-day with Mr. Price to see Mr. Hanford at his house and estate at Breeden Hill, which is, I believe, one of the highest in England. The ridge, or rather the edge of it, divides in this part Worcestershire from Gloucestershire. At the very highest part of it there are the remains of an encampment, or rather, I should think, citadel. In many instances in Wiltshire, these marks of fortifications are called castles still, and doubtless there were once castles on these spots. From Breeden Hill you see into nine or ten counties, and those curious bubblings up, the Malvern Hills, are right before you, and only at about ten miles' distance, in a straight line. As this hill looks over the counties of Worcester, Gloucester, Hereford, and part of Warwick, and the rich part of Stafford, and as it looks over the vales of Esham, Worcester, and Gloucester, having the Avon and the Severn winding down them, you certainly see from this Breeden Hill one of the very richest spots of England, and I am fully convinced, a richer spot than is to be seen in any other country in the world, I mean Scotland excepted, of course, for fear Sawney should cut my throat, or, which is much the same thing, squeeze me by the hand, from which last I pray thee to deliver me, O Lord. The Avon, this is the third Avon that I have crossed in this ride, falls into the Severn just below Tewkesbury, through which town we went in our way to Mr. Hanford's. These rivers, particularly the Severn, go through, and sometimes overflow, the finest meadows of which it is possible to form an idea. Some of them contain more than a hundred acres each, and the number of cattle and sheep feeding in them is prodigious. Nine-tenths of the land in these extensive vales appears to me to be pasture, and it is pasture of the richest kind. The sheep are chiefly of the Leicester breed, and the cattle of the Hereford, white face and dark red body, certainly the finest and most beautiful of all horned cattle. The grass, after the fine rains that we have had, is in its finest possible dress. But here, as in the parts of Gloucestershire and Herefordshire that I have seen, there are no turnips, except those which have been recently sown. And though amidst all these thousands upon thousands of acres of the finest meadows and grassland in the world, hay is, I hear, seven pounds a ton at Worcester. However, unless we should have very early and even hard frosts, the grass will be so abundant that the cattle and sheep will do better than people are apt to think. But be this as it may, this summer has taught us that our climate is the best for produce after all, and that we cannot have Italian sun and English meat and cheese. We complain of the drip, but it is the drip that makes the beef and the mutton. Mr. Hanford's house is on the side of Breeden Hill, about a third part up it, and it is a very delightful place. The house is of ancient date, and it appears to have been always inhabited by and the property of Roman Catholics, for there is in one corner of the very top of the building, up in the very roof of it, a Catholic chapel, as ancient as the roof itself. 
It is about twenty-five feet long and ten wide. It has archwork to imitate the roof of a church. At the back of the altar there is a little room, which you enter through a door going out of the chapel, and adjoining this little room there is a closet, in which is a trap-door made to let the priest down into one of those hiding-places, which were contrived for the purpose of evading the grasp of those greedy Scotch minions, to whom that pious and tolerant Protestant James I delivered over those English gentlemen, who remained faithful to the religion of their fathers, and, to set his country free from which greedy and cruel grasp, that honest Englishman Guy Fawkes wished, as he bravely told the King and his Scotch council, to blow the Scotch beggars back to their mountains again. Even this King has, in his works, for James was an author, had the justice to call him the English Scavola. And we Englishmen, fools set on by knaves, have the folly or the baseness to burn him in effigy on the 5th November, the anniversary of his intended exploit. In the hall of this house there is a portrait of Sir Thomas Winter, who was one of the accomplices of Fawkes, and who was killed in the fight with the sheriff and his party. There is also the portrait of his lady, who must have spent half her lifetime in the working of some very curious sacerdotal vestments, which are preserved here with great care, and are as fresh and as beautiful as they were the day they were finished. A parson said to me once by letter, "'Your religion, Mr. Cobbett, seems to me to be altogether political.' "'Very much so indeed,' answered I, "'and well it may, since I have been furnished with a creed which makes part of an act of Parliament. And the fact is, I am no doctor of divinity, and like a religion, any religion, that tends to make men innocent and benevolent and happy, by taking the best possible means of furnishing them with plenty to eat and drink and wear. I am a Protestant of the Church of England, and as such blush to see that more than half the parsonage-houses are wholly gone, or are become mere hovels. What I have written on the Protestant Reformation has proceeded entirely from a sense of justice towards our calumniated Catholic forefathers, to whom we owe all those of our institutions that are worthy of our admiration and gratitude. I have not written as a Catholic, but as an Englishman, yet a sincere Catholic must feel some little gratitude towards me, and if there was an ungrateful reptile in the neighbourhood of Preston to give, as a toast, success to Stanley and Wood, the conduct of those Catholics that I have seen here has, as far as I am concerned, amply compensated for his baseness. This neighbourhood has witnessed some pretty thumping transfers from the Normans. Holland, one of Baring's partners, or clerks, has recently bought an estate of Lord Summers, called Dumbleton, for, it is said, about eighty thousand pounds. Another estate of the same lord, called Strensham, has been bought by a Birmingham banker of the name of Taylor, for, it is said, seventy thousand pounds. Eastnore Castle, just over the Malvern Hills, is still building, and Lord Eastnore lives at that pretty little warm and snug place, the Priory of Reigate in Surrey, and close by the not less snug little borough of the same name. Memorandum. When we were petitioning for reform in 1817, my Lord Summers wrote and published a pamphlet under his own name, condemning our conduct and our principles, and insisting that we, if let alone, should produce a revolution and endanger all property. The bearings are adding field to field and tract to tract in Herefordshire, and as to the Ricardos, they seem to be animated with the same laudable spirit. This Osman Ricardo has a park at one of his estates, called Broomsborough, and that park has a new porter's lodge, upon which there is a span new cross as large as life. Ay, big enough and long enough to crucify a man upon. I had never seen such a one before, and I know not what sort of thought it was that seized me at the moment, but though my horse is but a clumsy goer, I verily believe I got away from it at the rate of ten or twelve miles an hour. My companion, who is always upon the lookout for cross-ditches or pieces of timber on the roadside, to fill up the time of which my jog-trot gives him so wearisome a surplus, seemed delighted at this my new pace, and I dare say he has wandered ever since, what should have given me wings just for that once, and that once only. 
Worcester, Tuesday, 26 September. Mr. Price rode with us to this city, which is one of the cleanest, neatest, and handsomest towns I ever saw. Indeed, I do not recollect to have seen any one equal to it. The cathedral is indeed a poor thing, compared with any of the others except that of Hereford, and I have seen them all but those of Carlisle, Durham, York, Lincoln, Chester, and Peterborough. But the town is, I think, the very best I ever saw, and which is indeed the greatest of all recommendations. The people are, upon the whole, the most suitably dressed and most decent-looking people. The town is precisely in character with the beautiful and rich country, in the midst of which it lies. Everything you see gives you the idea of real, solid wealth. Aye, and thus it was, too, before, long before Pitt, and even long before good Queen Bess and her military law and her Protestant racks were ever heard or dreamed of. At Worcester, as everywhere else, I find a group of cordial and sensible friends, at the house of one of whom, Mr. George Brooke, I have just spent a most pleasant evening, in company with several gentlemen, whom he had had the goodness to invite to meet me. I here learned a fact which I must put upon record, before it escaped my memory. Some few years ago, about seven perhaps, at the public sale by auction of the goods of a then recently deceased attorney, of the name of Hyde, in this city, there were, amongst the goods to be sold, the portraits of Pitt, Burdett, and Payne, all framed and glazed. Pitt, with hard driving and very lofty praises, fetched fifteen shillings, Burdett fetched twenty-seven shillings, Payne was, in great haste, knocked down at five pounds, and my informant was convinced that the lucky purchaser might have had fifteen pounds for it. I hear Colonel Davis spoken of here with great approbation. He will soon have an opportunity of showing us whether he deserve it. The hop-picking and bagging is over here. The crop, as in the other hop-countries, has been very great, and the quality as good as ever was known. The average price appears to be about seventy-five shillings a hundredweight. The reader, if he do not belong to a hop-country, should be told that hop-planters, and even all their neighbours, are, as hopward, mad, though the most sane and reasonable people, as to all other matters. They are ten times more jealous upon this score than men ever are of their wives, ay, and than they are of their mistresses, which is going a great deal further. I, who am a Farnham man, was well aware of this foible, and therefore when a gentleman told me that he would not brew with Farnham hops, if he could have them as a gift, I took special care not to ask him how it came to pass, that the Farnham hops always sold at about double the price of the Worcester. But if he had said the same thing to any other Farnham man that I ever saw, I should have preferred being absent from the spot. The hops are bitter, but nothing is their bitterness compared to the language that my townsman would have put forth. This city, or this neighbourhood at least, being the birthplace of what I have called the Little Shilling Project, and Messrs. Atwood and Spooner being the originators of the project, and the project having been adopted by Mr. Weston, and having been by him now again recently urged upon the ministers, in a letter to Lord Liverpool, and it being possible that some worthy persons may be misled, and even ruined, by the confident assertions and the pertinacity of the projectors. This being the case, and I having half an hour to spare, will here endeavour to show, in as few words as I can, that this project, if put into execution, would produce injustice the most crying that the world ever heard of, and would, in the present state of things, infallibly lead to a violent revolution. The project is to lower the standard, as they call it, that is to say, to make a sovereign pass for more than twenty shillings, in what degree they would reduce the standard, they do not say. But a vile pamphlet-writer, whose name is Cropwell, and who is a beneficed parson, and who has most foully abused me, because I laugh at the project, says that he would reduce it one half. That is to say, that he would make a sovereign pass for two pounds. Well, then, let us, for plainness' sake, suppose that the present sovereign is, all at once, to pass for two pounds. What will the consequences be? Why, here is a parson who receives his tithes in kind, 
and whose tithes are, we will suppose, a thousand bushels of wheat in a year, on an average, and he owes a thousand pounds to somebody. He will pay his debt with five hundred sovereigns, and he will still receive his thousand bushels of wheat a year. I let a farm for a hundred pounds a year by the year, and I have a mortgage of two thousand pounds upon it, the interest just taking away the rent. Pass the project, and then I, of course, raise my rent to two hundred pounds a year, and I still pay the mortgagee a hundred pounds a year. What can be plainer than this? But the banker's is a fine case. I deposit with a banker a thousand whole sovereigns to-day. Pass a project to-morrow, and the banker pays me my deposit, with a thousand half-sovereigns. If, indeed, you could double the quantity of corn and meat and all goods by the same act of Parliament, then all would be right. But that quantity will remain what it was before you pass the project, and, of course, the money being doubled in nominal amount, the price of the goods would be doubled. There needs not another word upon the subject, and whatever may be the national inference respecting the intellects of Messrs. Atwood and Spooner, I must say that I do most sincerely believe that there is not one of my readers who will not feel astonishment that any men, having the reputation of men of sound mind, should not clearly see that such a project must almost instantly produce a revolution of the most dreadful character. Stanford Park, Wednesday, 27th September, morning. In a letter which I received from Sir Thomas Winnington, one of the members for this county, last year, he was good enough to request that I would call upon him if I ever came into Worcestershire, which I told him I would do, and accordingly here we are in his house situated certainly in one of the finest spots in all England. We left Worcester yesterday about ten o'clock, crossed the Severn, which runs close by the town, and came on to this place, which lies in a north-western direction from Worcester, at fourteen miles distance from that city, and at about six from the borders of Shropshire. About four miles back we passed by the park and through the estate of Lord Foley, to whom is due the praise of being a most indefatigable and successful planter of trees, he seems to have taken uncommon pains in the execution of this work, and he has the merit of disinterestedness, the trees being chiefly oaks, which he is sure he can never see grow to timber. We crossed the Team River just before we got here. Sir Thomas was out shooting, but he soon came home, and gave us a very polite reception. I had time yesterday to see the place, to look at trees and the like, and I wished to get away early this morning, but being prevailed on to stay to breakfast, here I am, at six o'clock in the morning, in one of the best and best-stocked private libraries that I ever saw, and what is more, the owner, from what passed yesterday when he brought me hither, convinced me that he was acquainted with the insides of the books. I asked, and shall ask, no questions about who got these books together, but the collection is such as, I am sure, I never saw before in a private house. The house and stables and courts are such as they ought to be for the great estate that surrounds them, and the park is everything that is beautiful. On one side of the house, looking over a fine piece of water, you see a distant valley, opening between lofty hills. On another side the ground descends a little at first, then goes gently rising for a while, and then rapidly, to the distance of a mile perhaps, where it is crowned with trees, in irregular patches or groups, single and most magnificent trees being scattered all over the whole of the park. On another side there rise up beautiful little hills, some in the form of barrows on the downs, only forty or hundred times as large, one or two with no trees on them, and others topped with trees, but, on one of these little hills, and some yards higher than the lofty trees which are on this little hill, you see rising up the tower of the parish church, which hill is, I think, taken altogether, amongst the most delightful objects that I ever beheld. Well then, says the devil of laziness, and could you not be contented to live here all the rest of your life, and never again pester yourself with the cursed politics? Why, I think I have laboured enough. Let others work now, and such a pretty place for coursing and for hare-hunting and woodcock shooting, I dare say and then those pretty wild ducks in the water, and the flowers and the grass and the trees, 
and all the birds in spring and the fresh air and never never again to be stifled with the smoke that from the infernal wen ascendeth for evermore and that every easterly wind brings to choke me at kensington the last word of this soliloquy carried me back slap to my own study very much unlike that which i am in and bade me think of the gridiron bade me think of the complete triumph that i have yet to enjoy promise me the pleasure of seeing a million of trees of my own and sown by my own hands this very year ah but the hares and the pheasants and the wild ducks yes but the delight of seeing prosperity robinson hang his head for shame the delight of beholding the tormenting embarrassments of those who have so long retained crowds of base miscreants to revile me the delight of ousting spitten upon stanley and bound over wood yes but then the flowers and the birds and the sweet air what then shall canning never again hear of the revered and ruptured ogden shall he go into his grave without being again reminded of driving at the whole herd in order to get at the ignoble animal shall he never again be told of six acts and of his wish to extinguish that accursed torch of discord for ever oh god forbid farewell hares and dogs and birds what shall sidmouth then never again hear of his power of imprisonment bill of his circular of his letter of thanks to the manchester yeomanry i really jumped up when this thought came athwart my mind and without thinking of the breakfast said to george who was sitting by me go george and tell them to saddle the horses for it seemed to me that i had been meditating some crime upon george asking me whether i would not stop to breakfast i bade him not order the horses out yet and here we are waiting for breakfast ryle wednesday night twenty seventh september after breakfast we took our leave of sir thomas willington and of stanford very much pleased with our visit we wish to reach ryle as early as possible in the day and we did not therefore stop at worcester we got here about three o'clock and we intend to set off in another direction early in the morning End of chapter 24